Chapter Eight of The Death of the Lion. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Death of the Lion by Henry James. Chapter Eight. I blush to confess it, but I invited Mr. Paraday that very day to transcribe into the album one of his most characteristic passages. I told him how I had got rid of the strange girl who had brought it. Her ominous name was Miss Herter, and she lived at an hotel. Quite agreeing with him, moreover, as to the wisdom of getting rid with equal promptitude of the book itself. This was why I carried it to Albemarle Street no later than on the morrow. I failed to find her at home, but she wrote to me, and I went again. She wanted so much to hear about Neil Paraday. I returned repeatedly, I may briefly declare, to supply her with this information. She had been immensely taken, the more she thought of it, with that idea of mine about the act of homage. It had ended by filling her with a generous rapture. She positively desired to do something sublime for him, though indeed I could see that, as this particular flight was difficult, she appreciated the fact that my visits kept her up. I had it on my conscience to keep her up. I neglected nothing that would contribute to it, and her conception of our cherished author's independence became at last as fine as his very own. Read him, read him. That will be an education in decency, I constantly repeated, while seeking him in his works even as God in nature, she represented herself as convinced that, according to my assurance, this was the system that had, as she expressed it, weaned her. We read him together when I could find time, and the generous creature's sacrifice was fed by our communion. There were twenty selfish women about whom I told her, and who stirred her to a beautiful rage. Immediately after my first visit, her sister, Mrs. Milsom, came over from Paris, and the two ladies began to present, as they called it, their letters. I thanked our stars that none had been presented to Mr. Paraday. They received invitations and dined out, and some of these occasions enabled Fanny Herter to perform, for consistency's sake, touching feats of submission. Nothing, indeed, would now have induced her even to look at the object of her admiration. Once, hearing his name announced at a party, she instantly left the room by another door, and then straightway quitted the house. At another time, when I was at the opera with them, Mrs. Milsom had invited me to their box, I attempted to point Mr. Paraday out to her in the stalls. On this she asked her sister to change places with her, and, while that lady devoured the great man through a powerful glass, presented all the rest of the evening her inspired back to the house. To torment her tenderly, I pressed the glass upon her, telling her how wonderfully near it brought our friend's handsome head. By way of answer, she simply looked at me in charged silence, letting me see that tears had gathered in her eyes. These tears, I may remark, produced an effect on me of which the end is not yet. There was a moment when I felt it my duty to mention them to Neil Paraday, but I was deterred by the reflection that there were questions more relevant to his happiness. These questions, indeed, by the end of the season, were reduced to a single one. 
the question of reconstituting, so far as might be possible, the conditions under which he had produced his best work. Such conditions could never all come back, for there was a new one that took up too much place, but some, perhaps, were not beyond recall. I wanted, above all things, to see him sit down to the subject he had, on my making his acquaintance, read me that admirable sketch of. Something told me there was no security but in his doing so before the new factor, as we used to say at Mr. Pinhorn's, should render the problem incalculable. It only half reassured me that the sketch itself was so copious and so eloquent that even at the worst there would be the making of a small but complete book, a tiny volume which, for the faithful, might well become an object of adoration. There would even not be wanting critics to declare, I foresaw, that the plan was a thing to be more thankful for than the structure to have been reared on it. My impatience for the structure, none the less, grew and grew with the interruptions. He had, on coming up to town, begun to sit for his portrait to a young painter, Mr. Rumble, whose little game, as we also used to say at Mr. Pinhorn's, was to be the first to perch on the shoulders of renown. Mr. Rumble's studio was a circus in which the man of the hour, and still more the woman, leaped through the hoops of his showy frames, almost as electrically as they burst into telegrams and specials. He pranced into the exhibitions on their back. He was the reporter on canvas, the Van Dyke up to date, and there was one roaring year in which Mrs. Bounder and Miss Braby, Guy Walsingham and Dora Forbes, proclaimed in chorus from the same pictured walls that no one had yet got ahead of him. Paraday had been promptly caught and saddled, accepting with characteristic good humor his confidential hint that to figure in his show was not so much a consequence as a cause of immortality. From Mrs. Wimbush to the last representative who called to ascertain his twelve favorite dishes, it was the same ingenuous assumption that he would rejoice in the repercussion. There were moments when I fancied I might have had more patience with them if they hadn't been so fatally benevolent. I hated at all events Mr. Rumble's picture, and had my bottled resentment ready when, later on, I found my distracted friend had been stuffed by Mrs. Wimbush into the mouth of another cannon, a young artist in whom she was intensely interested, and who had no connection with Mr. Rumble, was to show how far he could make him go. Poor Paraday, in return, was naturally to write something somewhere about the young artist. She played her victims against each other with admirable ingenuity, and her establishment was a huge machine in which the tiniest and the biggest wheels went round to the same treadle. I had a scene with her in which I tried to express that the function of such a man was to exercise his genius, not to serve as a hoarding for pictorial posters. 
The people I was perhaps angriest with were the editors of magazines who had introduced what they called new features, so aware were they that the newest feature of all would be to make him grind their axes by contributing his views on vital topics and taking part in the periodical prattle about the future of fiction. I made sure that before I should have done with him there would scarcely be a current form of words left me to be sick of, but meanwhile I could make surer still of my animosity to bustling ladies for whom he drew the water that irrigated their social flower-beds. I had a battle with Mrs. Wimbush over the artist she protected, and another over the question of a certain week at the end of July, that Mr. Paraday appeared to have contracted to spend with her in the country. I protested against this visit. I intimated that he was too unwell for hospitality without a nuance, for caresses without imagination. I begged he might rather take the time in some restorative way a sultry air of promises, of ponderous parties hung over his August, and he would greatly profit by the interval of rest. He hadn't told me he was ill again, that he had had a warning, but I hadn't needed this, for I found his reticence his worst symptom. The only thing he had said to me was that he believed a comfortable attack of something or other would set him up, it would put out of the question everything but the exemptions he prized. I'm afraid I shall have presented him as a martyr in a very small cause, if I fail to explain that he surrendered himself, much more liberally than I surrendered him. He filled his lungs for the most part with the comedy of his queer fate. The tragedy was in the spectacles through which I chose to look. He was conscious of inconvenience, and, above all, of a great renouncement, but how could he have heard a mere dirge in the bells of his accession? The sagacity and the jealousy were mine, and his the impressions and the harvest. Of course, as regards Mrs. Wimbush, I was worsted in my encounters, for wasn't the state of his health the very reason for his coming to her at Prestige? Wasn't it precisely at Prestige that he was to be coddled? And wasn't the dear princess coming to help her to coddle him? The dear princess, now on a visit to England, was of a famous foreign house, and in her gilded cage, with her retinue of keepers and feeders, was the most expensive specimen in the good lady's collection. I don't think her august presence had had to do with Paraday's consenting to go, but it's not impossible he had operated as a bait to the illustrious stranger. The party had been made up for him, Mrs. Wimbush averred, and everyone was counting on it, the dear princess most of all. If he was well enough, he was to read them something absolutely fresh, and it was on that particular prospect the princess had set her heart. She was so fond of genius in any walk of life, and was so used to it and understood it so well. She was the greatest of Mr. Paraday's admirers. She devoured everything he wrote. And then he read like an angel. Mrs. Wimbush reminded me that he had again and again given her, Mrs. Wimbush, the privilege of listening to him. I looked at her a moment. What has he read to you? I crudely inquired. For a moment, too, she met my eyes, 
and for the fraction of a moment she hesitated and colored. Oh, all sorts of things. I wondered if this were an imperfect recollection or only a perfect fib, and she quite understood my unuttered comment on her measure of such things. But if she could forget Neil Paraday's beauties, she could, of course, forget my rudeness, and three days later she invited me by telegraph to join the party at Prestige. This time she might indeed have had a story about what I had given up to be near the master. I addressed from that fine residence several communications to a young lady in London, a young lady whom, I confess, I quitted with reluctance, and whom the reminder of what she herself could give up was required to make me quit at all. It adds to the gratitude I owe her on other grounds, that she kindly allows me to transcribe from my letters a few of the passages in which that hateful sojourn is candidly commemorated. End of chapter 8